0: Hey everyone, welcome to Let Me Know How It Is, a podcast about all things geek. This is a special episode because it isn't every day you get to sit and talk with a legend. We welcome prolific writer J.M.D. Mateus to the show to talk about his upcoming animated projects. Thanks for listening. I'm Zach Slater. I'm Frank Melman. And we are thrilled to have a very special guest on today's show. He is the writer of seminal works in comics such as Justice League International and Craven's Last Hunt. He's written scripts for animated shows such as Justice League Unlimited, Batman the Brave and the Bold, Thundercats, and Teen Titans Go. In addition, he's written multiple films in the DC animated straight-to-video series. His latest work can be seen in the upcoming animated film adaptation of Superman Red Sun, which will be released on Blu-ray March 17th. Joining us via Skype, he is J.M. DiMatteis. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. Thanks for being here. Yes, thank you.
1: So let's jump no right in. Okay. All right. So, for those unfamiliar with the graphic novel Superman Red Sun, it's a story written by Mark Millar with art by Dave Johnson and Killian Plunkett. And it features an alternate history in which Kal-El, or baby Superman's rocket, crash lands in the Soviet Union. So, we were curious exactly, JM, how did you get involved with adapting this
2: particular work? Well, as you've mentioned, I've worked on a bunch of these uh, DC animated movies, and I've been working for uh, Warner Brothers Animation and primarily on DC properties for about I don't know 15 or 16 years now so uh, I know these guys we've worked together for a long time they know my work and we enjoy working together and it was just the next project that came up I got a call one day from Jim Krieg at Warner Brothers Animation saying we're doing Red Sun do you want to do it and uh happily I was not intimidated because I I, I had never read it before all right and so it happened. Same thing happened years ago. The first thing I did for Justice League Unlimited was an adaptation of Alan Moore's For the Man Who Has Everything, mm-hmm. which I'd never read. So I, I didn't know about its great reputation or how in, or else I, I would have been completely intimidated. You know, right. same thing with this. Uh, they sent me a copy and I read it. It was wonderful. And there's, it's an incredibly rich story. And then uh, just got to work with Jim and with Bruce Timm. And between the three of us, we kind of peeled the graphic novel apart and and put together the version uh, for the film and off to work I went.
0: Like, were you aware of the legacy this book has? I mean, it's kind of become a modern classic for right. You know, I knew it existed.
2: I knew it was well regarded. I didn't know it was as well regarded as it is. So, like I said, if I had known that, I probably would have been even more intimidated. You know, so uh, it's good to to work you know with a clearer eye without the intimidation
1: in your way. It's definitely one of those things where I remember when the book came out. I was working in a comic shop, and those um, those Dave Johnson covers were really striking in the fact that, you know, it was, you could tell that it was one of those books that DC was really going to try to give a push to and try to give some effort to get it out. And it seemed like a project like, like uh, Zach was saying, that has become a classic and definitely a a different, almost when we talk about Elseworlds, we talk about the imaginary stories back in the fifties, it's definitely a a more modern take on an imaginary story.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. The Elseworlds stories are great. I mean, one of my favorite things that I've I've done over the years was I did one This was back in the 90s called Speeding Bullets, Mm -hmm. which was uh, the the rocket lands outside Gotham. And and, uh, the baby is found by the Wayne family so that Superman essentially grows up to be Batman. Is that Jerry Ordway on that one? No, it was, oh, dear God. Eduardo Barreto. Right. Eduardo Barretta, thank you. You're him. welcome. Sorry, I corrected myself. Who, who did an amazing job. An right. amazing right. job on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would actually, I'm always kind of poking Jim Creek because I think it would, it's another one story that would make a great animated movie. I would love to see that. Plus, you get to throw the two biggest icons into the same character, so it's sort of a no-brainer. Absolutely not to spoil anything else. You you get some of that also in the rest of the
1: book, too. Yes, yes. Yeah. I'd buy it. Sure. It's two, yeah. <laughs> two sales. Well, good.
2: Sure. Yeah. Two sales, I think, I think it's a go. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So I was gonna say you've adapted aspects in your previous two Batman movies where you took bits from Court of Owls and bits from Grant Morrison's run on Batman. So, how has this script been different from those two? Which this one is more of a
2: top to bottom adaptation. Right, right, and also the Constantine City of Demons was also based on a graphic novel. But we had in those in those we were sort of. It, like even with the Constantine, it was based on a specific graphic novel. We, there was a lot of leeway, and I built a kind of. I kept elements, created new elements. You know, this. Um, I think we, although we, 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 because it's any adaptation, you're going to change things. You have to take a story. You know, a, a Mark story is like every page. It almost reminds me of Kirby. Every page there's like all these incredible concepts he's throwing out virtually on every page. There's so much stuff going on in that story. And then you have to streamline that down to like a 70, 80 minute movie. Mm -hmm. So you can't use everything. And then you have to, uh, his story also sort of, you know, kind of slowly expands across the decades. And we had to kind of narrow it down and, 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 and tell the story more like a tunnel, you know, Mm -hmm. as opposed to, as opposed to an open landscape. How's that? Sure. Um, so things get thrown out, other things get refined, certain things get changed, but but you want to stay true to the essence of the original story. And and that's what we tried to do. And there were, like I said, because there was so much rich material in there, it, it wasn't always easy. It was it was hard work. And I say hard work in a, in a joyful sense, you know, because you want this kind of hard work in your life to take a wonderful <laughs> story and hopefully turn it into a wonderful movie. So we spent a lot of time on the phone with Bruce Tim and Jim Krieg. And as we, well, what about this? And what about that? Well, this doesn't work. And, and it's always like, you know, you think you have it. And you figure it out. and You start writing it. And you go, oh, but that doesn't work at all. And you got to throw that out. And Then to find all the emotional through lines for the characters that have to be really straight, uh, straight through mm-hmm. uh, in, in a project like this. So it was challenging in a really, really good way. And in the end, you'll see that there are a, a lot of things that are different. And yet the essence and heart and soul of the story are the same. So you had a lot of back and forth between
1: Bruce and with um, you said it was Tim Creek, Jim Creek, Jim. Creek. Jim. 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 Did, yeah. did Mark have any input? Did Mark give you any notes? Did you talk to him at all about it? No,
2: no, we did not. Did not. Uh, it was just really, it was three of us working on the adaptation. And of course it all gets turned over to Sam Liu, who's a director, who's an amazing director. We, uh, a couple of months ago, a short that we did with Neil Gaiman's death character came out on the Wonder Woman Bloodlines DVD and it's one of the best things I've ever worked on in animation, and, and Sam just did such a beautiful job with it, and uh, he's done a beautiful job with this movie as well. So then, you know, we finish our part, and I we get the script where we want it, and I write the script, and and then of course the director comes along and kind of explodes it all visually, you know. Mm-hmm. And I always find it fascinating to see, you know, something that I've I put on maybe it's one and a half pages of script, and they visually explode that, you know, and and it go into a into a massive epic thing that that way beyond anything i visualized on the page, And you know, it's the same action, but they always manage to enrich things visually. And that's, that's the director's job on these, these projects.
0: I'm, I'm sort of interested kind of getting into some nuts and boltsy stuff
2: as far as the production goes. Did you see, I, I might not have all your answers, but <laughs> one thing that the, the difference with me is that I live on the East coast and all they're all on the West coast. Mm. So that, you know, if I, if I'm in LA, uh, if I'm around, I can go sit in on the voice sessions and be involved in a lot of other things in a lot of different ways. In general, for me, once I turn in my script, I'm pretty much done until I get to the until the, the movie's done. Mm. Uh, the rarity has been these couple of projects I've done for CWC, which was Constantine and uh, now Deathstroke, Knights and Dragons, which is playing right now. And on the CWC projects, they have just kept me in the loop every step of the way. Uh, I see all the animatics, which are sort of like rough drafts of the animation i have input about voices uh anytime they need a change they call me but usually when you're working on these things especially when you're working on television when they've got a staff you turn in your script and all these production things come up and they need something fixed or changed it's usually someone on staff that does that so it's been fun on these cwc projects really being able to be the one that they always turn to so that i know every single thing that goes into the finished product is mine um, not to take anything away, uh, I'm certainly not complaining about working with Bruce Tim and Jim Creek and <laughs> Sam Liu, you know, these, uh, these guys. The great thing about working with, with, with say, Bruce and Jim is that both of them are superb writers. They understand story so completely, and I certainly have a long history uh, of working in stories. So between the three of us, it's really, really fun to collaborate with these guys that are so good at what they do, and then between the three of us, take this this big granite block uh, of this story uh, which is almost like the monolith from 2001 and then carve <laughs> it down carve it down to something uh, that we can use in animation it was uh, it was a wonderful process working with those guys so like I'm curious about these
0: phone conversations so is it essentially sort of building the outline together, like the three of you,
2: or did you, you know, We'll get on the phone and, you know, it could be on the phone for an hour and a half, two hours, just talking story. Well, what do you think about this? Does this work? Does it, and then we'll have this long conversation. I'll go off and, and write and write the outline. They'll read the outline and we'll get back on the phone and we'll tear that apart for two hours and then I'll go back and, and then hopefully, usually by the second draft, uh, we've got, we've got the outline in place maybe okay. a third draft occasionally and then you go through the same thing on the script it's usually three or four drafts of the script before we get it you know exactly where everyone wants it so
0: how much time does that usually take how much time are you given between drafts would you say
2: <sighs> how long does that usually take it really depends on the needs of the given project sometimes it could be it could be a month or it could be hey we need this next draft in a week and a half it really okay. depends and you know, coming from working in comics, where you have to work fast or on a monthly schedule, you've got artists waiting for for your script. I always enjoy a tight deadline. It's a terror. I should never admit it publicly. I don't want editors <laughs> listening. But I we can edit that out if you want. Yeah, exactly. We'll <laughs> oh, take that out. <laughs> having my back to the wall, having a tight deadline. I, I, I find it uh, generally, not, I mean, if, if, I, if, if every project was like that, I'd have a nervous breakdown. Mm. But in general, I enjoy it. It's sort of like, okay, I've got five days, this has to be done, and just lock yourself away and blitz like a maniac. On it. And there's, it's kind of, uh, it's like being totally caffeinated without having to drink coffee. So it helps to have the deadline be the muse then. Yeah. What I find is, I've, I've seen this over the years and I talk to my writing classes about this. If you have like two months to work on something, You know, it's all about the process with the unconscious, you know, and you kind of, it's all about surrendering to the unconscious. Your unconscious kind of takes in the material and works on it, and suddenly the answers start to come, and I start to see movies in my head, and I start to write. And if you have two months, that process will take two months. If you have two days, Mm. the process will take two days. It's really interesting. It's really, really interesting. So, like, they've done a lot of adaptations, and I think one of, I think
0: some of the best ones are the ones that kind of play with the material a little bit, sort of, uh, run a comb through things.
2: Well, you have to because no matter what you're adapting, a novel isn't a movie. A graphic novel isn't a movie. They're they're just different. They're different beasts. And even when you think, oh, it'd be so easy just to translate that, when you sit down to do that, you suddenly seem to s- you understand how it just it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Mm. And maybe if you have like, you know, ten hours of a TV series to adapt something, but even then, you mm. know, the, the the requirements of each hour of TV are such that Things have to change. It's just it's just the nature of the beast. What you want is to be true to the essence of the story. You know, I've seen I've seen versions of David Copperfield. They're maybe like you know 90 minutes or two hours long, and they're adapting this giant book, and yet they get the heart and soul of the thing right.
1: Mm, you know, right, I,
2: right. I go back years ago. Robin Williams was in an adaptation of uh, John Irving's The World According to Garb, and they changed a lot in that movie, and yet the heart and soul of what the book was. Was there in the movie and that's what you hope for not you you don't worry about the details you worry about the heart and soul of the project
0: so like i'm curious about story pacing a little bit on this one because you've written a lot of comics you've written a lot of comics very very well you've written a lot of movies very very well so how is
2: the pacing different between the mediums would you say it's it's you know i'll say two conflicting things the first thing is story is story. You know, no matter what medium you're working in, whether you're writing a novel, whether you're working on a comic, whether you're writing a movie, the, the essence of story is the same. But the delivery system for the story is a little bit different because the requirements are different. Telling a story in 22 page chapters in a comic book that could have a certain flow and crescendo versus a 70 or 80 minute movie, or You know, writing a 70 or 80 minute movie is very different than writing a 30 minute uh, animated TV show because the beats are going to fall in in different places. The breaks are going to fall in different places unless you're taking that essence of that story and you're putting a different template over it. You know, Uh, it's almost like, you know, in, in the stage, they have different filters for the light. Uh, so you're shining the same light, but you put a blue filter over that one and a red filter over that one. Well, you know, you're writing a comic book, it's a blue filter. You're writing a movie, it's a red filter. You're writing for TV, it's a green filter. But it's the same light, but you have to filter it differently because it has different requirements. So
1: when you're adapting something, do you prefer to adapt some say something closer to your own work, something that you've already worked on,
2: or other people's work? You know, I haven't really. Uh, well, I have adapted my own work, but I'm you know with on projects where. Uh, We've sold something, uh, say for, for film, and we've done an adaptation, and it never got made. So I never had the pleasure of seeing mm. uh, seeing a finished project. So uh, mostly I've been adapting other people's work. And uh, but the good news about adapting someone else's work is you're not facing a blank page, right? Right. You're not sitting down and going, okay, I got to come up with a whole new story from scratch. You've got this wonderful template to work from. So you know, um, say with something like Constantine, City of Demons, where we had. Uh, Mike Carey's graphic novel that he did with uh, Leonardo Manco, beautiful Mm -hmm. graphic. His something, his something engines, and I can't, I'm blanking on the name. All his engines, I think it's all his engines. That sounds right. Um, Yeah, yeah, and it was a great story. So there's this great foundation with, you know, with great elements, perfect for Constantine. And then what you hope to do in an adaptation is to build out from there. So. You know, maybe it's not even just a foundation. Maybe it's a whole building. And yet, what you're doing is you're building a second story and a third story. Then you're building some 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 rooms, building outward from there, and maybe a few other buildings on the property. You got the same building there, but you're building onto it and adding to it. Mm. Uh, and that's the fun of it. And, and you want to have the freedom to be able to do that, because otherwise, then just go home and read the graphic novel or sure. go home and read the novel. This you want this to. Please the people that love the source material, but you want to bring something fresh to it, or else why do it? Why, why not just go buy an audio book? Right. That makes sense. So are you, are you able to talk about any of those
1: projects that you were working on, or can you not talk about those?
2: stuff that I'm working on now, I can't talk about. Okay. That. All right. Very well. Uh, but I'm happy to talk about Deathstroke. The first one sure. is out right now. And Deathstroke was a different thing because it wasn't we weren't adapting any one particular story. I, I had worked on this constant. The way it works with CWC, let's say with the Constantine Project and now with Deathstroke is I write a complete movie. They break it up into these mini chapters that play on CW Seed, And they usually they do the first half up front and then they wait and then do the second half maybe six or eight months later. And then they put out a DVD which has maybe 15 or 20 minutes more of the story in it. So they sort of edit it down for Seed. And so they put it out in these different formats, which is kind of fascinating. So they basically came to me and said, hey, we want to do something with Deathstroke. And they didn't have an idea. They did, it wasn't like we want to adapt this. Okay. So they sent me and, and you know, I'm aware of Deathstroke. I know the character exists. I remember reading, you know, Teen Titans 100 years ago when sure. he was in it. But I, I don't really know the character beyond the, if you would have said who's Deathstroke. I said, I know he's some kind of super assassin. And that's basically everything I knew about the character. So they sent me, uh, uh, I think, two or three collections, which I read through, and then I thought, oh, there's an interesting German of an idea over there, and there's an interesting character over there, And there's that interesting backstory over there, and I took these different elements and created my own story to go with it. So elements that that are that come out of the mythology of the character, but but building a story uh, that's that's new and original, and yeah. that was the fun of that.
1: You had mentioned that you you were much more involved in the day to day stuff of the CWC, the, the Deathstroke stuff.
2: You had right, mentioned Deathstroke, that. Constantine, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So when you were saying, with I was curious about about Michael Chiklis. Did you have a, a say so in that you wanted him to be Deathstroke? Did that come about? No, no. You? no the
2: ca- the ca- you know the casting uh, was 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 pretty much done. Uh, you know, on Constantine there was there was a period with certain voices where they sent me actors' voice tests, but I think when it came to the to the main characters. They're not gonna. They're not gonna wait for my approval. <laughs> <laughs> really? I was just delighted when I heard that uh, that they they get the, the people that they get for these things are just pretty amazing. Well, he's a great choice. Yeah, was, he's a fantastic choice. Yeah, it choice. A great choice, really great choice. Um, and Jason Isaacs playing Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason Isaacs, I, I, he's one of those actors that I am just in awe of his gifts. He's a really fantastic, fantastic actor. Um, so when I heard Jason Jason Isaacs, uh, I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. But I've seen that consistently with all these things, you know, that we got Matt Ryan to do Constantine for the animated version. Yeah, he's great, fantastic. You know, because he is Constantine. I can't imagine anyone else playing Constantine. No. The perfect casting. No. So the uh, the choices in, in the choices in voices that sounds like it's a Dr. Seuss book. Sure. Um, the choices in voices are, are really fantastic and i'm always I'm always delighted with with the acting. Uh, I remember the first time I heard the Constantine thing. every single performance, every single one there wasn't was right on the money. just so good, so good. Uh, and these actors, they don't go in there and shrug it off, always a quick paycheck. they You can tell that they take this stuff seriously and they give it their best. Is he also Constantine in Justice League Dark? Yes, okay. He was great in that as well. really, really yes. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to see them bring back uh, his a live action Constantine series it's fun to see him on Legends of Tomorrow but you know Constantine really needs to be in the Constantine universe you know yeah, sure. I think it would be great it would be great he seems
0: like he's having a blast too it seems like he jumped at the chance anytime yeah I, yeah. Did,
1: I describe Legends of People as as the the wackiest Bob Haney uh, Brave and the Bold you've ever seen just the right. amount of different characters and disparate stories that come together for that show yeah
2: that's true. It's true. And, and I know when they started it, they they said they mentioned that uh, the Justice League that I did with Giffen was a big influence in what they were trying to do. And I can see that in, in the tone of the show. I absolutely and see of course, do. Of course, my joke has always been, but, you know, you don't get royalties for tone. <laughs> no, <laughs> so. unfortunately, you don't. No. <laughs> but uh, it's OK. It's all right. So, yeah.
1: So we're working on the on the death showcase piece, the one that was on the Wonder Woman bloodlines. Yeah we were talking about, it. we were getting our notes together and getting our, our production stuff together. And, and uh, Zach and I talked about the fact that I know for a fact that if, if I hadn't looked at the credits, I would have known that was your work. Because, Interesting. Because it's one of those, I, I, it's one of those things where I, it's the only other time I know for well outside of comics that I know it's you, because I mean with, with credits now being a lot more forward or, or different places than they are, than they used to be in books. When you did the episode also of Thundercats, the one about the life cycle about the, the plants. Right.
2: I knew that was you as well. Oh, that's a great episode! Like the Thundercats episode, that idea for that episode didn't come from me. It came from them. They came to me with the idea, but you have to assume they come to you because they know of your sensibility and that you're someone who can do that. Mm -hmm. And with the Death Short, uh, they they came to. They had a couple of different ideas, and and Sam, the, the director, had the basic idea for the story that we did. But what I found so fascinating about working on that story. And again, it was me and on that one it was me and Sam and Jim Krieg, uh discussing the story. And all of us, you know, these things, certain stories just feel deeply personal.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Sometimes you're doing an adaptation. I have to say Superman uh, Red Sun didn't feel deeply personal. I was just invested in the story and the fun of the story. But it, I wasn't necessarily relating to it on a personal level, probably because I'm not a super being who was raised in the Soviet Union. Sure. But, uh, <laughs> but with, with this death story that we came up with, it, because it was about the cre- you know the main character is an artist who's struggling with his creative process um, all of us related to that and there's a, there's a scene in the beginning where it's the main character is a child on his living room floor mm-hmm. with his stack of papers and his crayons drawing that was my childhood yeah. that was my childhood boiled down but I think it was probably also Sam's childhood and in some form Jim's childhood because we were all creative people who have been through the ups and downs of what it is, to live this creative life. So it was it, it was really interesting that it was three different people there and it was deeply personal to all of us. So yeah, it was very much my kind of story. Uh, absolutely. And yet it was it was quote my kind of story for everyone that was involved <laughs> sure. in the project. Which is you 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 know you don't always get that something that that has such a profound personal resonance for everybody involved, which is why I love that story so much. Plus, we kept returning as a touchstone to the Twilight Zone. I was just going to say. It's that. like a little 20, what, however long it is, 22 minutes or something. It's a little 22 minute Twilight Zone episode, really, like those classic episodes where characters would meet death, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, and Jim and I especially kept talking about Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone, because we're both kind of Twilight Zone fanatics. And so, for me to do this story, Uh, which had such personal resonance and also approach it as if we're doing a great twilight zone episode, it was just such a great project to work on. And I'm so, so happy with the final result. It's one of my, if I I was going to make a list of my favorite animated projects of all time, it's definitely in the top, you know, two or
1: three. Mm. It's, it's a, it's a beautiful piece. It's one of those things where like when I say that I know it was your story there, it's, it's, it's equally tragic and equally hopeful at the same time Right. and I, right. I, and I really, that's something I think is a through line through a lot of your stuff through like say moon shadow or, um, what's the, other? Oh, uh, seekers into the mystery, that type of stuff that you mm-hmm, did. Mm-hmm. There was a yeah. lot of, there was a lot of heavy content, but at the same time there was a hopeful through line through a lot of it.
2: Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, that's sort of, uh, my view of life, Mm. really. And I always want to leave the you can't not always, but you hope that in the end, you hope Mm -hmm. that you leave with hope, right? Because my view of life is not that, you know, I always say to people, you know, if your view of life is that life is successful, and there's no hope, and we're all doomed, well, then go for it, write your story. That's, but that's not my view of life. I know that life can be difficult and dark sometimes. But my, my personal experience has always been that beneath all that, there is, there is a blazing light mm-hmm. that guides us through all this. And I try uh, to get that into my story. Sometimes I succeed. Sometimes I fail. Um, but that's at the very least, I'm always trying to get that across. And I'm glad that got across in the death story. Yeah, when you have a story that's really ultimately about death mm-hmm. and you leave people with hope, um, uh, you did a it's a job. tricky one. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, sure. It's funny. Years ago, I did a story uh, I wrote for the live-action uh, Superboy uh, series, which most people don't even know ever existed. Oh, the but, it, the nineties one. The yeah, mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. And I, I wrote like five episodes during their final season, and one of them was also it's about Superboy's encounter with death, and there are very similar themes uh, between in the in the two stories. But that you know, it goes back to there's the classic Twilight Zone. Um, uh, with Robert Redford playing death and the old woman, mm-hmm. and you know, this—I mean, obviously there's a great tradition of stories about people encountering death, and this is this is yet another one. And I'm I'm glad that it worked out as well as it did. So, do you know if Neil got to see it or has seen it? I think I think he finally did. Yeah, okay. I I, uh, I know there was a lot of back and forth on Twitter. Get Neil a copy, you know, right, right, <laughs> so, because um, since I'm just on working on my end, I never know what's going on on the other side mm. with the people staff and wh- whether there's wh- how much they spoke to the creator, if they've spoken to the creator, you know? So, um, so, but I do know uh, once it was coming out that, uh, it came up on Twitter and, and they got Neil a copy ASAP and I hope he was happy with it. Yeah. I mean, this is also like you, you have really
0: the honor of being the first person to adapt the whole Sandman world into another medium. It hasn't been done yet
2: no this is the first time it was done it's sort of like the, the the man who has everything i think you know adapting alan moore uh into animation certainly in animation that was the first time and i don't know if any of those alan moore movies had even come out yet at that point or maybe they had but um you know it was it was uh it was a big deal and it was uh i'm glad that they trusted me with that well, that was a, that was something i was
1: going to segue into is the idea that you did adapt for the man who has everything and it is one of the few that Alan Moore was okay with. He was actually pleased with the, with the, with the products that he actually enjoyed the, the
2: episode. So I've heard. So I've heard. Yeah. I hope it's true. You never know. You read it on the internet. True. Who knows if he really said that, you know, but I, I, I will, I will convince myself that it's true regardless. <laughs>
1: well, again, I mean, again, like you said, getting to the heart and soul and bowling it down to the, like it's a 22 minute episode of, of, a, yeah. of a great show. You, you, again, you do a really fantastic job of getting to the heart of the matter with that episode. And that, when that moment when, you know, Superman's basically like, I, I don't even know if you're real.
2: You know, you nail that part. That part is, mm-hmm. you know, comes through loud and clear. You know, that was the first episode of Justice League Unlimited that I did. And I remember I i, I uh, usually, you know, usually when you're working in TV, you go through at least three drafts. So uh, I, I, you know, we worked out the story and I wrote the first draft and I turned it in and I didn't hear anything for a while. And I thought, oh, God, <laughs> I must have screwed this up so badly you know mm, right are never gonna hire me again and I, so finally i called my friend stan berkowitz who worked on the show and i said i never got notes for the second draft and he went we don't need a second draft you, you nailed it the oh first wow time. that's great and that that <laughs> rarely happens let mm. me tell you you know, and I so said, when I got to the second episode, I different thought. Oh, great! First draft, I'll be done. No, here's the notes for the second draft. Here's the notes <laughs> for the final. You know, of course, this is the way it normally is. Right. right. So that was like a, a unique thing that there were no notes on that on that first draft. Um, but every once in a while, something magical happens, and you don't get any notes. But you know, let's talk about you want to talk about the process. You know, the note process is really important. Mm-hmm. And luckily, you know, I I get to work with people who are really smart about stories. So I get really good notes. And and I noticed, uh, you know, obviously working with guys like Bruce and Jim and and Sam, you know, but then I've noticed on CWC, because CWC is going through a whole different process. So I'm working with uh, executives from the CW network and and from and from the seed platform and their notes, both on Constantine and on Deathstroke, which I really appreciated, were always about character can we go even deeper with the characters can you you know we can we feel the feel this more can we bring out the psychology more whatever it may be and those you know that's what i always intend to do with the story so to get notes like that always to dig in more can you dig in more you can't complain about notes like that right now every writer hopes they turn in a draft and there'll never be any notes and they'll just say you're brilliant and go home but it doesn't always work that way so you what you hope for are great notes and i've been very lucky uh you know, 90 percent of the time you get great notes and sometimes you get a note that you don't think is so great. So you ignore it and you hope that that, that you do such a good job with the draft that they don't notice that you ignored that that note. So I, I was having a conversation.
1: I was talking to Peter Tomasi about him adapting the death of Superman mm-hmm. that he had worked on. And, and we were talking. He's like, you know, he asked me what I thought and how I liked it. I said, I love that. it was great. It was, you know, he did a really good job adapting it. And I said, we were just talking about, was there anything that you you know had to work on? Or basically, was there anything that they wanted you to cut that you really had to fight for? And he told me that there's a scene with Bibbo at the end where Bibo's having the prayer about Superman surviving. He's like, I had to fight tooth and nail to keep that in my script. And I guess that's a long way of asking you, is there anything from Red Sun or anything that you've worked on that you had to really fight for to keep? I'm
2: trying to think. Um, you know, I can't think of anything that really required... Um, a, a big fight about something. And the, the great thing is often what I get is here are the notes, but basically trust your own intuition. Okay. So, you know, it gives me the freedom to then, then put in the scenes that I want to put in. And if they don't work, then, you know, down the line, they can say, well, you know, this didn't really work. Let's change that. But I, I've never felt like if I had to go, you can't cut that out. Is, you know, and <laughs> right. I have a fight about that. No, I've, I've been lucky on that front. Okay. And also here, here's the other thing, especially with, with TV, When you're working, when you're writing for an animated TV series, they've got a staff of people. They've got a season mapped out. They have specific things that they want to do and hit, uh, and and plot points that they have to hit, and things that are going on Mm. all season. That I'm just stepping in for an episode here, an episode there. So it's their vision that's important. So I learned early on, it's not like writing a comic book, and certainly not like writing a creator-owned comic. This is not. I'm not coming in. And going, oh, well, here I am working on, say, Thundercats. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, now here is my vision of what Thundercats is. No, it's not about my vision. It's about their vision for the series and for the season and for the episode. My job is to do two things. One, execute their vision and then simultaneously, and it sounds contradictory, to bring as much of myself and my own vision to it. You know, you want to make it personal in any way while at the same time executing the vision of the producers for that episode. So it's it's a fine balance. You can't just be uh, a dictator machine. You know, they can't just dictate this stuff to you and you just type it and that's that or else what's the point of doing it? They could get a robot to do that. Mm. So you have to bring your own passion and your own point of view to it while at the same time honoring their vision because it's not my job to come in and change their vision. Now, when we're having conversations, obviously I'm suggesting things and different points of view and that's my job. But in the end, especially on on, on a TV series, you want to execute the vision of the producers on these movies uh, there's a little more leeway there So basically're they're, they're self-contained you know you're, you're right. in and you're out so you're not serving this greater master of a whole season. So basically you're a, creta- a creative
1: utility player at that point
2: <sighs> creative utility player like you're basically you're,
1: you're fulfilling a role that they need
2: you to be in the best way possible that you can do it. Yes, exactly, exactly, and 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 you have to bring the same passion and creativity to that as you would to the most personal project that you that you would work on. Gotcha. So that's that's the balance, you know. You can't just shrug it off and go, okay, I'm just going to do what they want to do, and here I go. You have to bring your own passion and point of view to it while honoring their vision at the same time. And that's the balance. And I think some people can't can't uh, achieve that balance. You know, some mm-hmm. people it's too hard to do. But I enjoy it because I I always my my joke is, you know, I spend most of my time alone in my room playing with my imaginary (laughs) friends, you know? Sure. So it's nice to get on the phone with my real friends and play with the story together. Right. I enjoy that. So I always say I sort of take off my my singular personal vision hat and I put on my team player hat. And once you do that, then I relax and I have a great time.
0: What's more freeing for you, though, working on uh, an adaptation or creating your own world
2: to sort of play in? You know, I like the balance between the two. I think if I, didn't, if I did not have the outlet of doing my own stuff, because uh, nothing beats creating your own world. Nothing, as far as I'm concerned. That's the best. You know, working on an original comics project or an original screenplay, whatever it is, and it's your idea. And, and especially when you're working in fantasy, you're, sometimes you're literally creating your own universe. Mm-hmm. And that is so freeing and exhilarating and so much fun. That uh, I don't know if anything compares to that. So I think if all I did was the other thing, you know, working uh, with other people's, you know, uh, adapting things or, you know, just just doing that without the freedom to go off and create my own thing from the ground up. I don't know if that would satisfy me. But the balance of having both things to be able to go off on my own or just work with an artist and create an entire universe. And then to be able to go and sit down and work with guys like you know Bruce and Jim and, and, and uh, all these other wonderful people I've been happy to work with over the years, that's a fantastic balance. And it kind of keeps me sane. But it's sort of the same thing I've tried to do in comics, too. And, and in the beginning, I didn't do it consciously. It just sort of happened. You know, I love working on these pre-established characters. You can't it – it's so much fun if you're writing Captain America or Spider-Man or the Justice League, Batman, whatever it is. But then I've always worked on creator own material as well. Uh, and I've always had that outlet and I've worked in different genres. You know, I've done superheroes. I've done the funny stuff with Keith. I've done autobiographical comics. I've done kids fantasy, I, you know, so you to, to, stay, to stay to keep your muscles healthy as a creative person and to stay sane, you have to mix it up. So to have the balance, uh, to work on these wonderful, uh, animation projects or, or, or the live action TV that I've been lucky enough to do, and then go off and, and do my own creator own comic book projects or turn around and work on Spider-Man or justice league or whatever it may be between all of them, it it creates a very, very fulfilling creative life for me. So
0: one of the things I would imagine that's fulfilling about working on an established character is that sometimes when you have a character's voice, that's so well-defined that the the character almost speaks to you from the page saying like, like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Or, or yeah, I'll go this way. And, um, so it's kind of like a cheat when you know which way, like the way Batman's going to go in a situation, right? So the fact that Red Sun is an Elseworlds, going back to that, does like Superman's traditional voice kind of complicate things in your head? The fact that you're writing like this different take?
2: Well, but the fun of this different take in this story is that there is still, with, with any of these sort of uh, Elseworlds, parallel universe versions of characters, whatever it is, there's always some essence of the character that's always there. And the trick is you've now twisted the character and turned it and placed it in a different context. And that's what makes it fun. But you want to hold on to the essence of who that character is. So in Red Sun, yeah, he's, he's now been essentially brainwashed with Soviet propaganda his whole life. And yet the way he interprets that is in a very, very positive vision for the world. He takes the purest uh, ideals out of that, uh, out of that ideology and, and sets out to, to bring peace and plenty to the world in his own way. Now, if you've read the story, you know that it, it doesn't always go easily, and <laughs> he doesn't always make the best choices. But there's that essence of Superman that, okay, when he lands in America, it's truth, justice in the American way, and here it's you know truth, justice in the Soviet way. And he's, he's trying to do the same thing from a different perspective. And that's what's interesting about it. So it's a totally different Superman, and yet at his core – there's something in him that's the same no matter
1: where you put him. So it's a matter of we, we talked about again, we were talking about notes about the book itself. The idea that in this one, especially it's a nature versus nurture, but still, the as you said, the essence of Superman shines
2: through. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's true of us as people. I think that things in our lives can twist us and bend us and really screw us up. That's true. At the same time, I think there's some essence of who we are when we come into this life that stays with us no matter what. It may get buried by uh out of circumstances or abuse or whatever else and twist us but i think that essence is always in there and i think you know the the game of our lives is to sort of peel away all that stuff that's layered on top of us and find that essence of who we are and in a weird way that is sort of the journey that superman goes through in this story Mm -hmm. so uh, we're getting close to wrapping up here so i want to give you the
0: chance to sort of talk about anything you have
2: coming up that you want to sort of showcase uh, what can I plug? Okay, I'll get all the plugs out of the way. Uh, coming up in March, I had a lot of fun. I got to do my first Star Trek story in like forty years when oh, I first wow. started. You love Star Trek. I I do love Star Trek. The <laughs> classic Star Trek, original Star Trek. That's the one that for me, you know. It's hard to be so beat. when I when I first started in the business, Marvel had the had the one of the first things I did for them was an issue of Star Trek when they had the license from Star Trek mm-hmm. the motion picture like in 1980. And that's the only time I've ever uh, done Star Trek. And so IDW came to me a few months back and they're doing a Mirror Universe series. Oh, wow. And they said, do you want to do the original series, Mirror Universe episode, uh, uh, which will have Khan? Oh. So, <laughs> so, so my, my little my little fanboy had exploded. Because, you know, Khan is one of, the, as far as I'm concerned, not just one of the greatest Star Trek movies, just one of the greatest movies. I love that movie. It's so good. And yeah. uh, to write Kirk and Khan and Spock. So it's basically the Space seat episode, but it's sort of like what we're talking about with Elseworlds. Mm. It's the Elseworlds version. So there are certain elements that are there, but mm. it's a very, very different story. And I had such a great time working on this. My friend Matthew Dow Smith, who is perfect for this project, did the art. And it comes out, I think, in the middle of March. I'm just thinking about the toys you
0: get to play with in that story. You get Khan and the Mirror Universe. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes.
2: And 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 you know, uh, Kirk and Spock and yeah. Khan. And I mean, come, come on. I was I had and talk about, you know, that's one where really when you talk about a character's voice after watching Star Trek my entire life. Hmm. How how do you not know how to write dialogue for these characters? Sure. They are so imprinted on our psyches, much more than a comic book character. Because when you're reading a comic book or a novel or anything else, you're creating the voice in your head as you read it. But here you got, there's William Shatner. There's Leonard Nimoy. There's Ricardo Montalban. They're talking to me. Right. Of course I know what to say. And I know exactly the rhythm and how to say it. You know, So that was really, really fun. And that'll be out, I think, like toward the end of March, like March 22nd. I will also plug uh, Dark Horse uh, a few months back put out a new edition, a hardcover, sort of definitive ultimate edition of Moonshadow, Very cool. uh, which is the best the best edition of Moonshadow that has ever been done in all these years. Um, beautiful hardcover. I dug through all my files and found all kinds of old outlines and notes, and John J. Muth found old sketches. So there's all kinds of great extras in the back and a beautiful presentation of Moonshadow, which is one of the you know, two or three best things I've ever done in my entire career. So I'm really happy that's out there. Yeah, that's a good one. And, uh, and a couple of other collections of stuff I did last year that are out right now is um, uh, The Girl in the Bay, which I did for Karen Berger's line at Dark Horse Burger Books, which is sort of a vertigo-y, twisty, time travel supernatural thriller that I'm really, really happy with. And at the other end of the spectrum uh, for IDW, my buddy Mike Cavallaro and I did a s- series called Impossible Incorporated, which is now out in a collected edition which is sort of an all ages romp in the in the tradition of uh, of Fantastic Four and Doctor Who. It's a big cosmic adventure story uh, where you get to play with the great big cosmic concepts, and it, we really really had fun with this one. And I hope that we can we can do more down the line. So and then the other animated thing I have coming up is I've I've written uh, three episodes of Marvel's Spider-Man, the new Spider-Man animated oh, cool. series. Uh, two of them two of them have been on. And the third episode, I think, comes on in the spring when they do their next season. So, And that one features uh, Moon Knight. That's the, so that was yeah, really fun. Very cool. So, so those are some of the things. And also, if anyone's interested, I, I do a writing workshop once or twice a year uh, called Imagination 101. And you can go to my website, jmdmatteis.com, or read the information about the workshops. And when I have a new workshop coming up, I always post it there
0: yeah you do and actually and i have done some of the script consultation with you as well right. i also do, i
2: also do one-on-one consultation with people yeah sure. and
0: they're fantastic because like like given criticism and script notes is an art i think and and like you're fantastic at doing it because you do it in a way that makes the script better and elevates it but it encourages you and it gets you excited to go ahead and do your next draft i think and you like you really take the time i'm glad to hear you say uh, that i mean you really take the time to like try and figure out sort of Motives, like like what were you trying to accomplish there? I think, which which I think not everybody tries to do. I mean, I've I've had notes from many many people, and not everybody goes the extra mile. I think,
2: of like like what were you going for here? That's yeah. the fun of it, you know. I I, I want to do that, and I first of all, the first thing you want to do is is encourage somebody. You know, you want to help them make their story the best thing it can be. And you also want to do that without crushing their soul. Do you know what I mean? You want to lift them up and make them excited about their own work. Um, you know, the best editors I've worked with have been people that are able to look at my story and not change my story, but find the essence of my story and actually present it to me in a way that I see my own story and my own goals with new eyes. Not to change it, but take the things that are there and help me to bring it out and make it the best story it could be. And then encourage me. And it's always fun for me when I teach these classes, when I work with people one on one, because I always learn something because, you know, you work long enough and you tend to do things intuitively. So I sit with a class and I do these weekend workshops. So we're there for three days. And then I do a one on one. Then I do a two-oh one, which is a four day writing intensive workshop. And I have to express things that I've done intuitively my whole life. So I have to think about my whole process in a new way and explain it. And I end up learning about it. And people ask really interesting questions, you know. So I, I, I really enjoy doing this. And, uh, so I'm glad you said that. It's, it's really fun. And work, then when you work up with people one-on-one, that's, you know, it's a whole different thing because it's very intimate, you know? Yeah, it's a wonderful resource. It really is. Yeah, it's
0: you. really kind of you to open yourself up and sort of help out the little guy because it's lonely out here
2: sometimes for the people trying to make it, you know, on our own. That's the thing about, you know, the creative life. It's lonely for everybody on some, on some level because ultimately it comes down to sitting alone in a room mm-hmm. with your unconscious mind and your imagination and trying to make something out of nothing. And it's the greatest job in the world, but it's also sometimes it's a struggle. Mm-hmm. So any encouragement you can get along the way is a great thing. That's what I've learned over the years, too. The littlest crumb of, of positivity, one little drop of it can transform somebody's life. And, you know, when I started in the business years ago, and I had the lucky enough when I started out, I worked with Paul Levitz and Jack Harris at D.C., and then I worked with Len Wein, um, mm. who, who, so who became not just, you know, not he became my mentor and my friend, and he was the guy that. Said not that, and Paul and Jack was certainly very encouraging. So I don't want to. I'm not being negative about them, (laughs) but but Len like took an extra interest in me. He kind of went, you know, you're not just some other guy that came wandering through my office. I think you really have something special, and I want to work with you and encourage that. That's and to have someone like Len ween who you know, who uh, uh, I I was in awe of his abilities anyway. To have him reach out to me that way and encourage me that way you know, that's worth, that's worth the universe, yeah, you know? Yeah. So oh you want gosh. to pass that on, you know, you really want to pass that on to people and you want, you don't want to crush them. You want to help them. Right. You know, because one thing I've learned over the years too, and then we should probably wrap up is that even when it seems like someone's work, unless people well, it sucks, <laughs> it doesn't mean that they suck. It just means that piece of work may suck. Right. And I have seen, you know, you work in comics and You know go go look find your favorite artist and then go it's easier to do with art because it's visual and look at their first published story that's true and sometimes you look at early work by these artists that we love and you go oh my god how did they even get a job Mm -hmm. this is horrible you know and sometimes you watch it if they're on a monthly book over the course of six months eight months a year and you see these people just flower and blossom into something that you never expected so i try to keep that in mind all the time too that even if something looks a little weak and wobbly that person tomorrow, or maybe with my with my help today, can blossom into something uh, way beyond uh, what what you think their work is. So that's the fun of it as well. And I see it with my own work. I go back and look at some of my early work, and it's like, oh my god, I want to burn it, you know. <laughs> and uh, but you know, over time, if this is your passion, if what you love to do is be creative and write and draw or act or sing, whatever it is, you're going to put your heart and soul into it, and that's the thing that makes people. Get better, and I've always said I see people that have tons of talent but don't have the will. the I call it a fierce will uh, to see it through. And and the littlest bit of rejection, and they'll run away. I've seen someone else who may have half the talent, the raw talent that that other person had, but they're so passionate about it that they will work it and work it and work it and transcend anything that other person could have done along the way. So it's an interesting thing. You can never write someone off. You just can't, because we all have this incredible potential creatively. That's great. That's beautiful, man. Yeah. I'll let you go because I know
0: you have some place to be, and I don't. I don't want to wrap it up. So um we didn't even get time to talk about your comic career, which we would love to do at some point. Awesome. awesome. We'll do a long. We'll do a longer chat. How's Wonderful. that? that's sounds Absolutely. terrific. We'd love that. You have an open invitation anytime. Thanks again for being here, Jam D Mateus. Everybody, don't forget to check us out on our website at Let Me Know How It Is where we'll post links to the Red Sun trailer as well as some clips that Warner Brothers has released, and. um We'll also post the trailer to Deathstroke Knights and Dragons there as well. And and if you'd like, we'd even put um, some of the Imagination Workshop links on there as well.
2: Oh, that'd be for great. Yeah. yeah.
0: And uh, don't forget to like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. That's it for now. See you next time.